0: The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. Our scripture this morning is found in the Gospel of John, reading from chapter 20, beginning with verse 19 of that chapter. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we've known what it is meant for you to take ordinary time and make it holy, to take just regular services and make them special. We thank you for these special days, but now as we come to this moment, we would like for you to give us your presence here, the way you did that night in Jerusalem, and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. As you gather from the text, the event to which we turn our attention took place on Sunday evening immediately after the crucifixion. There's no question but that those preceding three days were the darkest days in human history. And they were particularly devastating for those that were closest to Jesus. You will remember that the heavens themselves wept and turned dark as they faced the crucifixion of the Son of God. On Thursday night, the disciples had scattered and scattered in fear and, uh, The events of Friday had caused them to feel that everything they had lived for and everything that they had dreamed about had been destroyed, so that by Saturday, which was a Sabbath when they were not free to travel much, it must have been a day of unmitigated despair. And then Sunday broke. You must remember that Sunday for them was like Monday for us. It was the first day of the week, because Saturday was their Sabbath. And that meant that with the beginning of that first day of the week, life had to be picked up again. And for the disciples, it meant picking it up after three to three and a half years of incredible hope for an eternal kingdom to be established in this world. And now all of those dreams were gone. And they had to settle back and face the question, do we go back to Galilee and go back to fishing again? But that day some things happened that made them wonder. And some stories came to them and some experiences developed for some of them that caused them that night, Sunday evening, to look for each other very much the way a family does after a death or in a period of great crisis. And so they looked for those that were closest and most intimate with them. And so as they came together, they began to share their feelings and their experiences. It would have been wonderful to have been there and heard Mary tell about her experience in the garden, wouldn't it? And to have the others tell about uh, anything that had happened to them that day. I've often wondered if it was when Cleopas and his friend were telling them about their walk to Emmaus and the stranger that joined them as they walked to Emmaus and how he talked to them about the kingdom of God and how their hearts yearned within them, burned within them, and suddenly as they turned aside to eat and he broke bread for them, they knew that it was he. And now they came to tell the disciples that he was alive. I wonder if it was at that point that Jesus made himself known. Now, I don't know how he made himself known. He may have made himself known by being physically, visibly present. But I think there are times when God does not even have to do that for you to know that he's there. But we do know that as they suddenly realized he was there, He was there visibly, and he was there physically, because he spoke and physical sound hit their ears as he said to them, Peace be unto you. You know, uh, I'm sure that Peter cherished those words, because if he really believed that Jesus was alive, it may be that the last person in the world he wanted to meet was Jesus because of what he had done on Thursday evening when he denied him, and then when he fled, when Jesus was arrested. And so he had that longing to see him and that mortal fear, because he knew that Jesus had every right to rebuke him. But what was true of Peter was true of the others of the eleven. But when Jesus stood there that evening, he had not come to condemn, because his interest in us is not condemning us. He's never wanted to condemn us and never will want to condemn us. His interest is in speaking peace to us. And so he spoke in his first word, and I think it was more than a greeting. He spoke and said, Peace be unto you. Then John tells us that he showed them his hands and his sides. Now, that's the line in this passage that I want to deal with today particularly. He showed them his hands and his side. And I suspect that there is infinitely more involved in that brief line than any of us this side of eternity will ever grasp. Because, you see, if nothing else, it let them know the proof of his resurrection. Because there were the scars in his physical body. Now a resurrected body, but physical enough that the scars were present, and a week later the scar in his side was great enough that he could say to Thomas, Put your hand in my side. So it was the proof that now death had not held him, he was alive. And the Christian church believes that he wears that body today. Isn't it interesting that eternity can be hooked to material? and that the infinite can be joined to a body. But that what the historic Christian faith has said, that he ascended into heaven, and when we see him, that's what we will see, we will see him in resurrected form. So he showed them his hands and his side. But I think there was far more than just the proof to them that now he was alive, and they had to recognize that he was resurrected. I suspect it was in those first moments, as they beheld the scars in his hand and in his side, that the love affair of the body of Christ with the scars of Jesus began. Because if you know anything about the literature and the history of the church, there has been a passionate love affair between those who know Christ and those scars. Hath he marked to lead me to him, if he be my guide? In his hands and feet are wound prints and his side. You who are Methodist Wesleyans will remember Charles Wesley's five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. Because, you see, Charles Wesley saw in those scars, in those wounds, the promise of his own forgiveness. And it was the passionate love and the passionate gratitude of his own heart that was poured out in the verses of that great hymn. I never read this and think of that hymn, but that I remember J.B. Rattenberry, who was a great Methodist scholar in Britain who said that when he was growing up in his home church, he never enjoyed children's hymns. For some reason, they never reached him. But when he was just a child, he learned to love that great theological hymn. Because he said, I heard that line, and I thought about those scarves. And he said, I heard those words, my name is written on his hand.'" He said, the only writing I had ever seen on human flesh was tattooing. And he said, in my mind, the picture I had was of Jesus in heaven, and tattooed on his hand was my name. So that when I got there, I'd find him standing witness for me before the Father that I belonged there. He said, as a child, I loved that line. Now, uh, I think they began that night a love affair with that, those marks of his sacrifice for us. But I wonder if that's where a little glimmer of understanding began. And there is where I would like to place my heavy emphasis this morning, because the hardest thing in all the world for any mortal to do is to come to understand the sacrifice of Christ. There is something within every one of us that recoils from it, and we say either it's wrong, it can't be, or it's impossible, or it really has no existential significance. Our fallen minds have difficulty at this point. You say, why are you so positive about that? I'm positive about that because of particularly the ten that were there that night, because Thomas was not. You will remember it was the next week before he saw those scars. But you see, Jesus had spent at least six months getting them ready for that moment. And they had never heard a word that he said. You will remember the first occasion was at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus had taken his disciples north where he could get them alone, where he was shunning other people so that he could have his twelve by themselves. And you know what his concern was? First, who do people think I am? And they said, well, there's some who think you're one of the prophets, some who think you're John the Baptist. And then he turned and said, but who do you think I am? And in a moment, the scripture says, of illumination, in a moment of revelation, Peter spoke and said, we believe that you are the Christ. And Jesus said, good, three years has not been wasted. You now have caught on as to who I am. Now I want to talk to you about why I came. He said, it's going to be necessary now for the Son of Man to go to Jerusalem. There I will suffer at the hands of the religious leadership and of the political leadership. I will be taken outside of the city and will be nailed to a cross, crucified. One of the most fascinating and one of the most revealing lines in Scripture occurs at that point. Mark gives it to us. It says that Peter, when Jesus said, Now I go to Jerusalem and there I will be crucified, Peter took him to one side. And Peter said to him, Master, that's not right. Isn't it interesting when a mortal like you and me wants to lecture God on what is right and proper? Can you imagine how many times old Peter blushed about that in the days that followed? But very condescendingly, he took his master aside and said, Now, you've missed it. That is not the way it is going to be. That would be wrong. Now, you know who said that? The graduate of best theological training any man has ever had in human history. And there's not a great deal of difference. Some of us are that are graduates of current theological scenes and Peter. Because you see, we don't think the cross is necessary either. Now the depth of Peter's opposition to it was such that Jesus turned to him in words of strong rebuke. And he said, Get behind me, Satan. Because, you see, I think immediately he recognized behind those words the voice that he had heard in the temptation. When the devil said to him, It isn't necessary for you to go to the cross. If you'll just get out on your knees, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And so Jesus turned to his highly beloved disciples and said, You are the devil for me in this moment. Get behind me. But you see, Peter could not grasp it. Now, the second time that Jesus talked to them about it, I don't know how long it would have been. It may have been a month or two. It could have been three as they moved southward. Because there's some indications it took about six months to get from Caesarea Philippi to Calvary. And so somewhere in that journey, you get the story of it in Mark 9. It comes after the transfiguration, and it comes after that experience at the foot of the mountain, because you will remember when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a big crowd there. And there was a distraught father in the crowd who had a son who was a deaf mute, and he had an evil spirit within him that troubled him. And the father came to Jesus and he said, Master, I brought my son to your disciples. They came through this country not long ago casting out devils and healing the sick, and I thought they could help him. But whatever power that you gave them, they now have dissipated away, and they've lost it. And so Jesus said, Bring him to me. And Jesus delivered the young man and restored him to perfect health. And then he went on his way. And as he went on his way, he turned to his disciples in chapter 9 of Mark. And he said, We're headed for Jerusalem. And when we get to Jerusalem, I will be taken by the leadership, religious and political. I will be carried outside of the city and I will be crucified. And Mark says, but they didn't understand. Now, I'm interested that Mark said they didn't understand. I wonder how Mark knew. Now, I don't know, but you know how I think he knew? I think he knew because Peter told him. Because, you see, the tradition is that Peter and Mark were very close. And I suspect that many times Peter sat down and said, you know, it's unbelievable how totally we missed him. He said it to us again and again, but we didn't have ears to hear. And so we never understood when he spoke about the cross. And now he's in that room with him, and Jesus is showing him his hands and his side. Do you think there were flashbacks to Caesarea Philippi and that journey on the way after they had come down from the Mount of Transfiguration? And remember, Peter was one of the three, but he did not understand. Now, the third time must have come within two weeks of the crucifixion, three weeks at the most. Because you see, it was just outside of Jerusalem, and the story is told in Mark 10. Now, only a matter of days, and Calvary will be a reality. And as they're walking in the way, Jesus. For the third time, as Mark tells us, he begins to talk to them about the cross. And as he talks to them about the cross, Mark does not even comment on the fact that they didn't understand. But as soon as he's through, you will remember James and John looked at him and said, Master, can we have the right hand and the left hand in your kingdom? Have you ever had a significant message, significant to you, that you wanted to communicate to somebody else? And you very carefully prepared and found the moment when you could and you thought you had the person's attention. And you spilled your heart out and when you finished, the person changed the subject on you like that and you knew the person had never heard a word you had said. Because you see, what with Peter at Caesarea Philippi was blasphemous impossibility, and what for the eleven was incomprehensibility back in the ninth chapter is now nothing but just religious litany. And I can see Peter nudging John and said, you know, that's a funny speech he feels obligated to make. I don't have the vaguest notion what he's talking about, but isn't it funny how periodically he feels obligated to make that speech, because I don't think there is any question but that when Jesus began to talk about that cross, the depth of feeling within him was obvious to anybody who would had eyes to see or sensitivities at all to perceive. But now it was just pure litany. And you know that's the way a lot of our worship is? I took communion for years, and it was words and actions instead of grace. I was baptized and went and had the water poured on me and all the right words said, and there was no regeneration. Lovely litany for a young person in the church. And we turned the realities of the gospel into litany. Now we need the litany, we need the ritual. Thank God for it that Jesus didn't quit saying it. Because as Peter looked at those scars, In his hands and in his side, all of that that he had heard began to come back to him. And he began to say, Oh, and some faint glimmer of light began to go across that up-to-now darkened mind of Peter. And Jesus said to him, As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. Whosoever sins, ye remit, they are remitted. See these hands? Whosoever sins, you speak forgiveness to, they are forgiven. And he lifted those hands and showed those scars in his body. Now, uh, if the church did not hear those words before the cross, you know, I'm convinced we haven't heard those words since the cross. And it's my own deep conviction that most of us that call ourselves born-again are spiritually in the state of those disciples as they made their way toward Jerusalem. We somehow or other think we can be Christians without that kind of cross that Peter recoiled from. We think we can be Christians somehow or other without understanding the implications of what took place here. But let me see if I can say something that will make a glimmer of light come across my head and maybe across yours. Have you ever looked at those words? Jesus now is speaking to his own. And he says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Now, I never paid a great deal of attention to the usage in the Gospel of John of the term sent until the last few months. But I began, as I read through the Gospel of John again and again, I began to realize it is almost the key word to the Gospel of John, and that the key figure in the Gospel of John is not Jesus, but it's the Father. Because do you know how Jesus describes the Father? The Father is the sending me Father. And do you know how Jesus describes himself? I am the sent one. The Father has sent me. I dare you to sit down with the Gospel of John and notice the use of that expression, sent, through the 21 chapters. Between 30 and 40 times, Jesus uses it in those 21 chapters. And as he does... You know, it's interesting, I suspect in Aramaic it was more powerful than it is in English. I know it is in Hebrew, and they may have spoken some Hebrew, because you see, the word to send, the sending one, is shaleach. And the sent one, which is simply the word apostle, is the shaleach. And he says, as the Father shaleach shaleach me, I am shaleach. You. You are to be my Shaliah. Do you know that Jesus was saying, Peter, as Peter looks at those scars, those wounds in him, Jesus is saying to him, These are the marks of my sentness. This was what I was sent for. Now I'm sending you. I remember that Amy Carmichael had a poem that ran something like, Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar in foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archer, spent, lean me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound, no wound, no scar? Yet as the master, so shall the servant be. But whole are the feet, and pierced should be the feet that follow me. But thine are whole as she points to his pierced feet and to our whole feet. And then her last line is, Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? You know, it's interesting. In the resurrection, he came to show us his wounds and his scars. I wonder if that's what we're supposed to do when we report in. That's enough to sober a fellow, isn't it? Because you know what I tend to do? You see, when Jesus began to talk about the scars or about the cross, James and John began to think about position in his kingdom. And they said, could we have the right hand and the left? And he said, you really don't understand, do you? I'm talking about something more profound than that. Do you know what it's temptation for me to do? I'm tempted to talk about my position. You see, I'm a Methodist preacher, and I'm president of a Christian college. You know, he's not going to look for titles in that day. I think we may blush at our titles in that day, but he showed us his hands and his side, and he's going to say, now you show me yours, because as the Father sent me for a cross, I am sending you. You see, what they could not believe was that for the world to be redeemed, there was only way it could be redeemed. And that was through self sacrifice. And Peter didn't want Jesus to sacrifice himself. And one of the reasons Peter didn't want Jesus to sacrifice himself was because Peter didn't want to sacrifice Peter. And one of the reasons James and John didn't want to hear the words of Jesus were because James and John didn't want to sacrifice James and John. So they said, just give us a position and we will serve you. I'd like to ask you if you can draw a line between your position as a Christian and your passion to do what Christ sent us to do, and that's to redeem a lost world. You see, we'll be measured for our position, our witness, against the task he sent us to do. And when we face the task he gave us to do, there will be no way that we can accomplish it if there is not a total surrender of ourselves and a total giving of all that we are and all that we have to that accomplishment. And you know you can have a nice position and a nice reputation as a Christian and all the rest, but never have gotten to the place where he can spend you as he pleases, where he pleases, spend you totally the way he spent his son. Because that's what God wants out of the likes of me and out of the likes of you. You see, I notice that the church of which I am a part has lost its evangelistic thrust and has lost a substantial chunk of its missionary passion, and there are billions of people in the world today that do not know Christ, and there are millions in our own land that do not know it, and we can go about our ordinary business if we were not sent ones. But the one whom we are supposed to be following is the one who carries in his body the marks of total, absolute surrender to give all that he is and all that he has to one purpose, and that's the redemption of his Father's world. And he is the one who said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. But you see, I don't think we've heard, and I don't think we've understood, because if we had the world, Would be a different place. Now, I don't suppose that I should be too critical at that point, because everything that is human about us and fleshly recoils from that, and the new birth does not give you an understanding of it. That's the reason I suppose that I could never get away, have never been able to get away from the message of heart holiness because I found that the new birth didn't do enough for me, and I knew I had been born again. I didn't have any question about the fact that God had saved me, but I had a lot of question about whether I had ever heard and understood the call that he had given me to live in terms of his cross. And do you know why I believe in a deeper experience of grace? Because I look around at people just like me that are born-again evangelical, who are living comfortable American lives, and there are no marks in their lives of the kind of passion that move in our Lord.